listening to Shoot It Now, your weekly podcast about indie filmmaking and big-budget films with award-winning filmmaker Craig Newland. And welcome to another Shoot It Now podcast. If you're part of a camera team, we have a great episode from one of the best Steadicam operators in the business, who has worked with the likes of Martin Scorsese, Stanley Kubrick and Sam Mendes on the epic film 1917. Peter Cavacucci, welcome to Shoot It Now. Very nice to be here with you. And I understand, Pete, you got your break going way back into the early 1980s when you picked up a job on a television soap where they used a steady cam. Tell us a little bit about that, because this was after Kubrick had made The Shining. And I think at the time there were a lot of filmmakers keen to use a steady cam because of the opportunity a steady cam offered with dynamic movement and a different way of telling story which at the time allowed The Shining to really propel itself out there as something innovative and unique. Well, when I was at Brookside, I was a trainee, and there were two directors of photography. The um, managing director of Brookside had seen The Shining, and uh, he thought that the Steadicam would be a great innovative way to shoot walk and talking shots for the, um, for the soap opera. So Phil Redmond, who was this gentleman's name, spoke to the uh, camera department and it was decided that, you know, the camera department would buy a, a steady cam. So myself as a trainee and the other trainee, a guy called Peter Fearon, were just basically, you know, given the steady cam and a manual to look at and work out how to use this thing, you know. <laughs> Because the uh, DPs, you know, weren't interested at the time. And as soon as Peter Fearon and I realized, you know, what a great device it was, we threw ourselves into it. A gentleman con- called John Ward, who was a very renowned steady, steady cam operator, he worked with Kubrick on Full Metal Jacket. He came up for a couple of days and gave us some tuition. And then a gentleman called John Jordan, who ended up as being my assistant years later, was proficient with Steadicam. And he came up from Joe Dunson cameras in London and that got us off to a good start. So it was, you know, through a soap opera, got my experience with Steadicam. And the evolution of the Steadicam and what you started with in the 1980s with that early level of technology to the technology advances of the Steadicam today... I guess for me, one of the big changes in the Steadicam has to be the modular aspect. Is that one of the key advances for you? Well, yeah. I mean, the modularity of the of the Steadicams now makes it, you know, much more user friendly. I mean, I was introduced to Steadicam with the Mark II, which had a battery at the back, which was like a little fishtail. You could move it left or right to help balance the rig, and you know, you'd lock it off. And it was always a great danger, you know, hitting you know hitting against your knees or your thighs with that with that model. But that model was all all in one. You know, the the monitor was cabled to the bottom of the rig where it sourced its power and signal. And if the monitor went down, you'd have to literally stick a small, you know, black and white or small color monitor on top of that monitor. So um, lack of modularity was a real disadvantage because you'd have to swap out the whole rig if something went wrong. But now you can plug the monitor in still from the sled. But you, if the monitor goes down, you can replace it because it's got a plug going into it. The rest of the Steadicam really is just still a, a mounting plate with a post underneath it and batteries that act as a counterbalance. So there's very little to go wrong there. You know, we have radio focus now. So before when I started, the uh, focus bullet would be tethered with a, a wire to the Hayden motor and you'd have to follow the steady cam around wherever it went. So um, you'd have the operator, 
the grip, watching your back, and the focus puller all having to, you know, navigate tight spaces. So now the focus puller can be, you know, much further away and be in a perpendicular position to the steady cam, you know, and, and judge distance is much better. So steady cam's really moved on, you know. And like many camera crew, you cut your teeth on music videos and TVCs, although one music video in particular would change your trajectory in the film industry. And that was a music video for Eric Clapton, Forever Man, when you first found yourself working alongside cinematographer Roger Deakin. So tell us a little bit about that fortuitous meeting. Well, it was back in 1985. There was two directors from actually the the band 10CC, Godly and Cream. The concept was that all the cameras were in shot. There was, you know, a Titan crane, a giraffe crane, two Steadicam operators, myself and a guy called Jan Pasta. Jan was operating his own Steadicam and it was just before I'd bought my Steadicam. So uh, basically every camera was swirling around Eric Clapton and Roger Deakins was the DP and so we had a lot of opportunity to chat and you know I really got on with Roger and his longtime um, gaffer with him uh, John Higgins uh, whose nickname is Biggles because he's got this Biggles-like moustache you know Roger has been very loyal to me over the years when he's uh, shot in England or Europe he's been very kind to me over the years you know recommending me to other US DPs coming into the country. And as mentioned, you've worked with different directors, including Sam Mendes on 007 Skyfall and Stanley Kubrick, of course, with Eyes Wide Shut. For a large part of your career, you worked with film. And because of the digital era, we now don't have the cost factor of burning film like we used to. So there is more time to experiment with a shot, to find a shot. So when working with these big-name directors, do you prefer a shot list or a loose choreography of the shot or maybe a mixture of the two or perhaps a free-to-explore option where you're looking to find the shot through experimenting? Basically, because of safety, you've got to choreograph it, especially if you're doing a shot you know, that's in amongst a crowd. Usually, I'd, I'd ask the assistant director to plot the shot with the lead actors and you'd find out you know, the physical space that you're going to occupy, you know, the actual choreography, where you'll start, where you'll finish, where you may stop, where you may do like a 180 move because you've got to think about all the other elements around you and the lighting, of course, you know, how, you know, how the, le- the DPs lit the scene. So generally, it's much better to have a plan because of safety reasons. I mean, you can improvise, a cer- you know, a certain amount. You know, you certainly don't want to run into an extra or, a, or an actor. So steady cam's got to be a very considered process, setting up a steady cam shot. I'm just thinking how important, particularly for extras around a Steadicam operator is, how important a first AD is. First AD is essential, feeding in background extras at the right time. And I mean, the key person for me also is, is my grip, you know, because I'll always have a grip behind me, keeping an eye out for what I can't see, you know. They might have to, you know, gently push an extra aside if I'm coming back or I'm, if I'm marking left or right. And, you know, working with an AD, I mean, I remember a shot we did on Skyfall. We were um, shooting on a moving tube train and I was on a 40 mil lens pulling back with Daniel Craig through the carriage. And we have to filter in extras left and right. And if you know the London tubes, they're very, very narrow, the walk space. So I had to stick the steady cam sled 
out in front of me and almost walk sideways down the uh, pathway and we just like, as I said, feed the extras in. I mean, I thought on that particular scene, the um, ADs and extras did a great job because you can't, you know, sometimes you can see people moving in as the steady cam pulls through. But um, we had a great AD on that job, Michael Lerman, and he'd really, really trained extras well as to what, you know, what was required for the shot. That's one of the hardest things, though, isn't it? Walking sideways is one of the most hardest things as a steady cam operator. Is that right? It, it is, especially that way, you know, on the, in, a, in a tube train, you adopt a very unnatural position with the sled really far away from your body. It's more susceptible to unwarranted movement like that as well, and it's much more of a strain on your back. It's not really the way to do it normally. You'd have the rig very tight to your body, but in that situation, you know, I had to do something that wasn't ideal for comfort. You know, the shot worked out very well. There's a whole sequence of shots on the, that moving train that worked very, very well for that film. I want to go back now and have a look at that particular sequence. Yeah. yeah. Uh, knowing that, you know, you're walking sideways, it's, it's very cramped and yeah. all that load going on your back. So yeah. that'll give me a, a completely different understanding of how you shot that. And Stanley Kubrick, who you worked with on Eyes Wide Shut, he had a reputation for running scenes multiple times. As a Steadicam operator, you have to keep your energy to be able to go the distance. How challenging was that for you? And also, can you give us any example of scenes that were particularly exhausting to get in the can from Eyes Wide Shut? Stanley would often run multiple scenes multiple times uh, on a particular take. I think the highest I got up to was 57 takes on, <laughs> on Eyes Wide Shut. We were filming out at Elvedon, a palace that a Maharaja had built in Norfolk and this beautifully ornate, a normal looking English stately home from the outside, but inside it was like an Indian temple. It was incredible, this place. And there's a scene where Tom Cruise, his character, is discovered. Uh, he hasn't got the proper uh, entry password. And we did multiple, multiple 360 takes going around Tom Cruise that, you know, went on for, you know, all, all night over a number of days. So, you know, we ended up wide and then we ended up putting, I think, uh, a 180 uh, on the Steadicam. So I had the Steadicam on, mounted on a dolly. Stanley would go on for hours on one shot, you know, to get perfection. And I, I would imagine breathing, the breathing factors into so much of what you're doing, particularly with these multiple takes. And if you're breathing heavy, you've got to try and get that under control. So how have you over the years managed to control that aspect over your breathing? Your breathing technique, it's an essential part of steady camming, really. If you wear a, a normal vest that clamps around your chest and your hips, your breathing is somewhat restricted. So you've got to take, you know, slower, calmer breaths to keep, keep, the, keep yourself oxygenated. In recent years, back-mounted vests have uh, been produced. There's a company called Walter Classen in Canada who uh, make a uh, back-mounted vest which has no chest straps. So there's no restriction on your breathing. I use that vest and I use a vest called an exo-vest that's made by Tiffin. And you can front or back-mount that, but I, um, I back-mount on that. You know, those two pieces of technology have really helped with breathing and therefore help with your uh, extending your working hours on a set with Steadicam. 
And when you're operating a steady cam, it's not just the physical aspect that you have to cope with, but also the mental side is just as crucial. The narrow focus of being in the moment, looking for the execution of the shot. How hard is that to pull off, especially something that challenges you? Well, I mean, Steadicam is, uh, you know, a very complex discipline, really, because when you're doing a shot, you're firstly, you're thinking about, I guess, the distance you are from the actor, because that affects your frame. You know, if you're on a close up or a, you know, a mid shot or cowboy, you you've got to compose the shot first. So that's your major consideration as a camera operator, whether you're on a Steadicam or a dolly or a crane is keeping the shot beautiful i i tried to think of you know steady cam shots as almost like moving stills there's you know the shot has always got to be beautifully framed throughout the length of the shot so that's my I guess my major consideration and then being physically at the right distance at the right part of the shot you know trying to be able to repeat that over numerous takes to be consistent you know respecting your focus puller so you're not changing the distance all the time you know you've got to be consistent once you decided on what the shot is during a rehearsal you know you've got to be able to execute it unless the director wants a, a variation uh, execute it in the same manner each take so you know your choreography therefore is very important because that ties into what we've talked about before with you know extras you know and timing there could be um an actor in, entering frame for example left to right of frame and you've got to be in the right place at the right time there could be an explosion in the back of shot so you, all that's got to be timed out so the choreography is the is the essential part of it really one of the examples of that in eyes wide shut in fact it's one of my favorite shots is the apartment tracking shot with tom cruise when he comes home from yeah. his big night out and to remind people of this scene cruise walks into his apartment he walks slowly inside his body movement is telling us the impact of the night that has had on him he kind of looks melancholy in the scene he walks across the living room floor, stopping at the Christmas tree, turns off the light, and then walks into the kitchen, opens the refrigerator, gets out a drink, then sits down at the table. Now, the execution of the Steadicam shot is magical to watch for my eye for its simplicity. And I say simplicity because it's beautiful story telling us what the actor is going through. We've got the steady cam, the focus pulling, the music, the direction of the scene. It looks simple because of the exquisite timing from each department. Yeah, well, I mean, Stanley was always, a, you know, a great taskmaster. He just demanded, and rightly so, that the shot was perfectly level, smooth all the time. I think, I think we got up to thirty takes on that particular shot, and uh, you know, there's lots, there was lots of horizontals, and like to give away any loss of level on that shot. I think we're backing up along a corridor, and then uh, I let Tom go through the door, and I'm tracking behind him past the Christmas tree, as you said. I remember Tom was also, you know, very aware. I mean, American actors are really taught how to sit. So Tom really helped me on the sit down and boom down where I had to hold the shot as well. And that was a particularly hard part of that shot, just at the very end, keeping it steady on the bottom of the boom down. Because I think I had to squat at the end of that as well to get the camera down low. So that's a very, very taxing part where you need to be, um, you know, locked off as soon as you get to the bottom height. You know, just the 
coffee table when you go into that apartment. That's where your grip is making sure you don't knee that <laughs> coffee exactly, table. Exactly, exactly. I mean, the uh, you know the, the grip's always essential on that, especially with Stanley. I think at the start or end of the shot, you'd you know you'd you'd mark underneath the lens. You'd drop a um, a plumb line down. Um, and put a mark on the floor, and then I had two, two uh, or three lasers on the Steadicam, and I'd hold the um, rig above the mark, and then the grip or the camera assistant would point the lasers to that point, and when the lasers met, that would give me the exact height. The grip would be literally talking me into the mark, uh-huh. whispering, whispering in my ear, saying, you know, you're a foot away, you're six inches away, you're three inches away. You're on the mark. You're on the mark. You're on the mark. You know it was. I've, wow. I've never had that. Um, you know, be a one-inch tape mark, and I'd you know have to be my lasers would have to be firing, hitting that one-inch tape mark, and uh, you needed that kind of uh, precision. Precision with, with Stanley because he had such a good eye, and it was remarkable. And just how much did you learn and grow from the experience of working with Kubrick? Because our indie filmmakers can't imagine working on a project for eight months when a lot of indie films are shot in 15 days or less. And even though you had experience at this point in your career, you must have further honed and developed your skills across eight months. Well, I mean, my te- technique definitely got better and my fitness got better because, you know, just purely the amount of takes you do. Very, very considered slow moving shots so you had i mean it was a perfect opportunity to hone your skills and you know you'd obviously have to be on your toes all the time with him because he was a you know a great master of the cinematic art but you know a very very human person as well with a with a great sense of humor we had many a laugh with stanley sometimes people say he was very austere kind of person but you know we we had many a a nice chat with stanley i sorely missed And you were in the very enviable position of having the opportunity for these one-on-one conversations with Stanley Kubrick. Over the years, there have been people who have labelled Kubrick as difficult to work with, but he was a perfectionist, and that is consistent from everyone. He knew what he wanted, and he just didn't care how long it was going to take for being happy in any one scene. Well, I mean, Stanley was a giant of the cinema. I mean, two of my favourite all-time films, you know, one is Dr. Strangelove, the other 2001. They both had a really profound effect on me. I think I saw um, 2001 with my mother when I was 11 years old, and I remember leaving the cinema, and both of us were just like, you know, talking about what it meant, you know. Yeah, I had a a few really, really nice chats with Stanley, you know. We were up in Mentmore Towers, I think it was on a couple of night shoots, and I just wandered into this room, and Stanley was sitting down on his own. I sort of did an about-face and said, oh, sorry to disturb you, Stanley. And he said, no, Pete, come and have a chat. And we just, like, we chatted for 45 minutes or an hour, you know, just about everything, football, filming, American soccer, what he did at weekends, you know, I sort of asked him how he did the back projection and front front projection on 2001 and, you know, there were other occasions on sets when you were waiting for actors, you know, you'd, you'd have a chat with him, you know, he was very often when we were on the Ameri- you know, the New York back lot, he'd sat in an open Luton van with a microphone and a, a heater beside him so you'd just pull up an apple box and sit next to him and have a chat. So, I mean, he, he you know, he liked communing with the crew, you know, he had a great sense of humor i mean how surreal though pete was that for you given that you go back those those handful of years back to the soap 
<laughs> back to the back to that soap production and getting that steady cam because of um, the reference to The Shining, and here you are having these one-on-one conversations with Kubrick. Well, I mean, no way did I ever think I'd be sitting on a set with Stanley Kubrick, you know, ever in my life, or Martin Scorsese, or Bill Friedkin, some great directors I've ended up working with. I mean, it's just fortuitous that I I found Steadicam, really. Getting a job in Liverpool even was, back then in the early 80s, you know, Liverpool was on its knees. It was... um, a very poor town was, you know, huge social issues in Liverpool. And for a Londoner to get a job in Liverpool, it was just crazy because all the uh, Liverpudlians, you know, were, com- were coming to London. But I have to say Liverpool had a great effect on me. You know, it's a, it's a fantastic town and great people in Liverpool. And that sort of stayed with me. I've, you know, that, the thanks for that lucky break I had to get a job in Liverpool. And it's a great example for our indie filmmakers listening. You just never know where this industry might take you. It's timing, yes. It's word of mouth, yes. It's being in the right place at the right time. You can't predict what may or may not happen in your film career. Yeah, I mean, and I came from a a very, very working class family. You know, my my father was uh, a coal miner originally, then uh, an excavator driver. My mum worked in a Smith's clock factory in Cricklewood. So I came from very humble beginnings. It just goes to show, I think, if you follow your passion, you can actually get somewhere. And I want to talk about the two-wheeler rig, which is called... I think it's called the jackal that you sit on while being pushed from behind. I've, I've seen this being pimped out with all sorts of modular things hanging off it. Tell us a little bit about that because I don't really know too much about it. Is that something that's kind of uh, evolved over the last 10 years, the jackal and the way that that operates? On The Shining, they used a, a wheelchair. They had the Steadicam hard-mounted to a bazooka, which was attached to the wheelchair, and they did that so they could get those low shots, you know, with when Danny was, like, cycling through the corridor, so they'd have the camera very low pursuing him. And um, a company called Optical Support in London developed this great rickshaw called the Mantis, which myself and an operator, Peter Robertson, had a lot to do with the design. And you can hard, hard mount the steady cam, or you can step on and step off it at the start or the end of a shot. And, you know, we've got a magnetic lock, so you just reverse on, step back onto the rig, the magnet will be on, and it just locks you in, and then the grip just turns the magnet off. And then the jackal is another thing that optical support have made, but it's uh, basically a lighter weight version of a rickshaw. The Mantis and the Jackal can have a third wheel on the back so you can steer it a little bit like a dolly as well. And the film 1917, the one-shot film, or was it? As we know, it's broken up into pieces to give it that illusion of a one-up, which is an astonishing feat in itself. I'm not sure how many long takes were on Steadicam. I presume the trenches is one area that you worked in. And I was very curious to how those trench scenes worked with a Steadicam because you don't have a lot of, shall we say, wiggle room on either side, especially with extras and a lot of intermingling going on. How difficult were some of those tracking shots in the trenches? How how tricky to manoeuvre between them? 
Some of the trenches uh, on 1917 were only 18 inches or 14 inches wide. So it was very difficult. What we ended up doing was taking the monitor off the bottom of the steady cam on many occasions. And we'd put uh, a small monitor on the gimbal, gimbal handle. There's a device called a Trinity, which is a steady cam with a gimbal head on the top. So we borrowed the idea from, from the Trinity, which, because the Trinity has the monitor on the gimbal handle, just to cut down the width of the steady cam. And also a new steady cam was developed called the Dragonfly, which basically has a gyro on the bottom and two batteries which can be lifted up or put down uh, so you've got more knee room. That was developed for, very, for the very, very tight spaces in the trench. And also on the top of the Dragonfly, we'd put a three-axis gimbal called the Stable Eye. That gave us even more steadiness, and it also gave us the ability to point the lens over, you know, over my shoulder so I could be running forwards and an actor could be pursuing the camera. And that was really the only way we could do those shots. We thought about, you know, whether we put a, a stabilized crane arm into the trench, but the combination of the stable eye and the dragonfly worked really well. And it meant that, you know, Roger could operate the uh, stable eye remotely and I would put myself in the right position in the trenches. And we could go from a shot where I was pointing the camera backwards over my shoulder and I could switch the steady cam round, go into a little recess in the trench and that would be panned round and then I could pursue him again. So um gave us some very, very versatile opportunities, the stable eye. And was that the first time that you used the stable eye and the dragon flying conjunction? Yeah, I mean I think that was the first time it was the first time the stable eye had been put on a steady cam like device uh, in the UK and the the advantage is I mean you, you see with a lot of gimbal he head work if it's handheld you can still see the rise and fall in someone's steps but because you put the gimbal head on the steady cam you lose that stepping motion so it it's a real advance really so you'd always want to use that, right, moving forward if it's taking out that step and it becomes that much more smoother? Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's a great device. Um, you do need a lot of rehearsals with it, though, because, you know, the operator, you know, in this case was Roger operating the, uh, the gimbal head, you know, is two or 300 yards away from where, where the action's taking place. And if you haven't got, you know, the physical attachment to the camera or can see it, it can be very disorienting. You know, even if you're on a crane sometimes operating remotely, at least you can see the crane and you have a sort of physical understanding of where it is. But, be, you know, because of the length, the distances, the operating wheels were away from the camera head. It was very tricky for Roger. It's a bit like flying a drone. Exactly, yeah. It was tough, but I mean, you know, we got some great results. The results that you got with the way that Steadicam and all the other devices to bring that all together was just amazing. And it sort of leads me into this question. When you were doing situations with handoff from the Steadicam to a handheld or a crane shot, how difficult was that in terms of getting the fluid movement right? Yeah, a, a lot of the shoot was done with the stable eye. So the stable eye would be um, handheld by uh, the two grips. So they'd very often be, you know, pursuing the actors with the stable eye. And at the end of the shot, perhaps the stable eye would get hooked onto a Technocrane 
and then there'd be a you know a, a boom up across a trench or something. So the stable eye was a vital part of of the shoot. Really, you know, it, it opened up a lot of uh, opportunities. I mean, there's a great scene where uh, Schofield has been. You think he's been shot and killed by a German soldier. You know, he wakes up. You see him walking out of a canal side building, and there's a flare going over. And basically the shot comes through a window and booms down. And that's the stable eye on the Technocrane. And then at the bottom of the shot, two grips take the stable eye off the crane and they chase after to Schofield, do a 180 around him and then run away from him. And as they're running, they, they pass the stable eye to me. I was on the back of a, um electric vehicle and Schofield runs at the, you know, the camera and the electric vehicle precedes him. And at the end of that the run, I handed the, the stable eye to, to two other people, Charlie Rizek being one of them, the guy who did the uh, majority of the Trinity work on the film. And also the trick of having the ability to keeping the steady cam as much as possible close to you because the... The further the steady cam is away from your body, the more pressure your back is going to be under. So how over the years have you perfected that? A lot of people won't realize keep the steady cam close to you for that very reason. Keeping the steady cam close to your body is like the core core tenets of steady cam operating really. It's all to do with how you balance the rig. I mean you 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 know, when you're learning you you're not quite sure how to position your body, but the key is you just stand straight as you would do normally, perhaps bend your knees slightly, but you balance the steady cam arm left and right, so in your normal standing position, you trim it so it comes as close to your body as it can. And then there's a um, up and down adjustment on the socket block of the Steadicam arm, which brings the Steadicam closer to you or further away to you. So in conjunction with those two adjustments, you trim it. So when you're standing upright, the Steadicam just floats beside you. So that's where you keep it, you know, whether you're running, walking or whatever. And then on the occasions where you need to um, push it away from you, you know, that's, that's what you have to do, you know, to, you know, maybe you're switching the steady cam around the front of your body to go from walking in front of somebody to, to pursuing somebody. But the further it is away from you, the, you just in, you increase the chances of more involuntary movement and it just strains your back as well. Pete, I feel like there might be some people listening to this podcast who might have been planning working in another area of filmmaking. However, after hearing some of your stories, they might have been inspired now to get involved in Steadicam work. So for someone starting out, what are some key pieces of information that you could impart to them? Well, if you're specifically wanting to be a Steadicam operator, I mean, the first thing is start working on your, your physical strength, you know, by getting down to the gym or running uh, and taking up something like yoga or Pilates to counter all the stiffening effects the Steadicam will have on your body because it does make, you know, your calves, your thighs, your back, all those muscles contract. So the first thing is, you know, Swimming is a great thing. Just start exercising and, and then you need to contact a friendly Steadicam operator or a hire house to start practicing with the rig. I mean, taking a course, through, you know, the many courses that are run by Tiffin and in the States and in the UK. And also there's some great courses in Germany that are run uh, via Christian Betts. 
also some great courses in France run by a, a company called Steady Makers. So doing a course is essential, but just a cor- doing a cor- one course is not enough. You know, you've got to practice with a, a rig for a considerable amount of time. You know, a steady cam operator, it's it's a, a way of life, isn't it? You've got to look after, maintain the body. That'll be through fitness, core strength, I would imagine, is just so critical. Diet would also play a factor. The breathing that we've covered, there's a lot that all folds into this living the life of a steady cam operator. It is. It's. I mean, it, it, it is a way of life. I mean... You know, I'm not a particularly tall guy, and I'm not particularly, you know, I'm five foot eight, qu- quite slim. But you know, there there are some people with different genetics who's built like horses and can get away with that exercising. But I'm not one of them. I'm, you know, I actually I I do enjoy uh, going to the gym and running and doing my Pilates. It, it's something I really enjoy. So I guess I'm lucky. I mean, as a as a teenager, I did uh, a lot of martial arts, and I think that really put me in a a good position to be a Steadicam operator. I was very lucky and I was one of those kids who were into Bruce Lee in the early 70s. So martial arts really did help me. And just to finish up, I've got to ask you this question. What is the single scene of Steadicam operating that you are most proud of? That's a really difficult question. Um, I think I'd go back to... uh, I couldn't pick a particular scene, but there's, I, I think Kundun as a film I worked on with Roger and Martin Scorsese as a, as an experience was probably a once in a lifetime job, you know, working with the Tibetans who'd come all, from all over the world. It was such an emotional film and it just, it felt more than a film, you know, it was a real statement of solidarity with the Tibetan people. And I think I did some of my best work on that film, you know, just through the passion to do these people honor, you know, so, um, and they were just beautiful people, you know, they would look after us every weekend, you know, and uh, it was, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm really happy with a lot of my work on, on that film for a number of reasons. Pete, what a great informational podcast it's been. So many things for our filmmakers to take away. Great advice. And thank you for being so open and sharing the skill level from someone with such a high level of steady cam operating. And thank you for coming on to Shoot It Now. Well, it's been a great pleasure, Craig. Take care and I hope all the podcasts go really well. Very important. We all talk to each other. You've been listening to Shoot It Now with Craig Newland, your weekly podcast about all things behind the camera and in front of it. Until next time, have a great week.